Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're new, so glad you found us. Um, And this week, we are diving into week one of a six-week practice series, Prayer and Lament. So grab your Bibles and let's dive in together. Some very good spots. If you uh, are new with us this morning, as Ron said, I am Landon and uh, thankful that you're with us this morning. We're going to be starting a a new series uh, and actually twice a year, we call it more than a series, it's a a practice. And so uh, we do this, as I mentioned, just two times throughout the year for everybody where we want to not only uh, study the scriptures and, and what Jesus says, but take him seriously and seek to put into practice his way of life and the everyday stuff of our lives. And so we've done a lot of different practices. This morning, we're going to start our first for this year, which is kind of twofold. It's going to be three weeks on prayer and then three weeks on lament. Uh, and I'm Excited might not be the right word um, because lament just does not sound fun, but it's one of those things that is deeply, seriously needed and impactful. And often in our culture, we, we do one of two things with brokenness and hardship, I think often. Either we like riot and choose somebody to hate or cancel or something of that variety, or we just pretend altogether that any type of hardship and brokenness doesn't exist. And, and neither of those seem to be working out that well, while the scriptures actually give us this means and, and methodology for processing what is really actually hard and, and broken and traumatic. And it's called Lament. There's this book in the scriptures called Lamentations, and that's really what it's about. And so we're going to put that into practice, which I think will be important for us as a, a church family. That'll be the second half. The first half is on prayer. And there's, there's some of you in this room that prayer is your thing, and it's foundational, and you're just have this great, good relationship with God and this communion and communication, both speaking and listening through prayer and probably have a ton to teach all of us uh, about what prayer can look like and what a healthy prayer life uh, is. And then there's some of you that really don't like to pray, or maybe you think prayer's just a a big waste of time, Um, or maybe you're at a place where you go, if God knows everything Why should I I pray anyway? That doesn't seem to be a very efficient use of time. I like efficiency, and I would would agree sometimes. As I process prayer, does it actually matter? Uh, I think it's a worthwhile question. I think one of the best things that we can do in our faith is actually ask those questions. Is prayer really a waste of time? And seriously, think about it and ponder it. And the answer actually is yes, potentially. There's a right way to pray, and then there's some wrong ways to pray. And if we're embracing it in a wrong way, it's going to not do anything good or meaningful. It'll just be a waste of time, if not harmful. And here's what I mean by that. In life, there's these things I like to call beautiful reversals. It's a moment, maybe in like a championship game where there's a comeback and there's this beautiful reversal or, or maybe in more significant, like meaningful matters. Maybe it's a, a really important relationship and it seems as if it's over and there's no help, it's dead and somehow there's forgiveness or restoration or reconciliation. It's this beautiful reversal. Or perhaps as we look at the scriptures, what we do see 
is that wherever Jesus shows up, there's all kinds of beautiful reversals. There's relationships mended. There's people that have literally died that he restores and brings back to life. There's reversals of injustices and and cultural destruction that he reverses and and brings health out of. Wherever Jesus shows up, this happens. And it's actually the case with prayer. In the beginning, Satan, only three chapters into the scriptures in the book of Genesis, he puts together this scheme that really destroys communication with God, both how Adam and Eve spoke to him and heard from him. And it still is devastating how we pray today. And then we have the Lord's Prayer. Uh, It's sometimes referred to as in Matthew chapter 6. And it's this incredible reversal. I'd actually never thought of that until uh, Thursday afternoon. I was praying and working through this. And I had read through Genesis 3, and then I was rereading through Matthew 6. And everything that Satan tries to destroy and distort and deceive us on, Jesus restores. He does the total reversal, and it's beautiful and really impactful for our prayer. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to start with this, though. Prayer does actually matter, and here's why. Because when we are praying, we're practicing trusting God instead of trying to be God. And when we're trying to be God, which we all do frequently, multiple times a day in our own way, it only leads to disaster. When we trust Him, it's good. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean it's not challenging, but it leads to health and something wholesome and right and good. And as I said, uh, Satan wants nothing more than to destroy that. And so it's important, actually. It's valuable. It's needed to look at how Satan seeks to destroy our prayer, our communication, how we speak to God and how we hear from him. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, Genesis chapter 3, and we will... uh, begin there. Every now and then I do this. It's kind of weird, but to me it's helpful. So we're actually going to read backwards. We're going to read Genesis 3 verses 1 through 10, but we're going to start in verse 10 because in verse 10 what Satan has done is done. He's accomplished it. He's actually been successful in his mission to destroy this communion and conversation and health with Adam and Eve. And so what I want to look at this morning is how he did that, the, the steps, the sequencing that led to this point. So we'll begin reading in verse 10 and then work our way back to verse 1. <clears throat> uh, verses 9 and 10, actually. So the Lord God called out to the man, Adam, and he said to him, where are you? And he said, this is Adam now speaking to God, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. I heard you and I was afraid. You know, to this point where we're able to tell that Adam and Eve had these walks with God. And the the cool, perfect breeze of the evening. They walked in the garden together and they talked and had communion. And it was everything it was supposed to be. God had already declared how good it was. God's a brilliant creator. And they got to walk with God in this garden. And all was good. And then verses 9 and 10 The Lord calls out to him for their walk that they apparently did in this garden from time to time. And Adam's response, how he communicates to God in this moment is, I heard you and I was afraid. I heard you and I was afraid. Why? God had done nothing to cause any type of fear in Adam and Eve. In fact, he'd only done everything perfect. He had created and all was good, but all of a sudden, in this moment, something has changed. And now, when Adam and Eve hear this voice that they're used to hearing, 
They no longer expect what they should expect, what has been, what history has shown. There's fear and they hide from God. What ends up happening in this moment because of Satan's power and and cunning abilities is that Adam and Eve begin to communicate prayer, speak to and hear from God as if he's someone that he actually is not. And my guess is that many of you have, have spent time praying, meaning speaking to God and listening to him as if he has a history that he doesn't have as if he's somebody that he actually is not. And that could take the, the role of maybe an abusive or an angry father. That could take the, the image of maybe an absent or preoccupied father. Or, or maybe one that's capable but just not that interested. But all of a sudden, if we have the wrong idea of who God actually is, it's going to change everything about how and why we pray. Verse 8, we'll continue to work backwards. Then the man, Adam, and his wife Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, this peaceful good walk. And they what? Hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what's happening at this point is they completely cut off communication with the Father. Maybe you're not uh, back to the place where you're willing to give God another try and you want to speak to him and, and listen for his word. Maybe you're just at the point where you go, I don't want to hear anything from him. I would rather hide and cut off all types of communication. What Satan has done, this scheme, this plan, and it's a good scheme and plan. By good, I mean effective, is he's cut off communication. So they hide, ironically, from the only one that can make things good again from the only one that can reverse, from the only one that's capable, from the only one that's actually loving and knowledgeable and powerful enough to deliver and provide and care and forgive. But they hide. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them, again, being Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Now, we, we have to remember as we read the scriptures, they couldn't just grab their iPhone and go to Amazon and order a fresh pair of of clean underwear now that they're naked and they know it. They didn't have that option. So they they did the the next best thing. They found some big leaves, whatever the biggest leaves were in the garden, and they decided to form some underwear out of that, fig leaves, to cover up their nakedness. The issue with the fig leaves is that they're really big, itchy Leaves. So their brilliant idea in this moment was to get the biggest, itchiest leaves and apply them as underwear. This is how the scriptures start. That's stupid and irritating, physically and otherwise, and just dumb. These are choices that are not good. And, and here's the sequence. There's something funny about the, the just stupidity, my kids would be mad at me if they heard me say that word, of their choices. But we so often make stupid, irritating, and painful choices when we choose to trust ourselves instead of trusting God, which is what we'll see in in verse 6. Then the woman saw, it's a very important word, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Remember, this is something she saw with her own two eyes. She looks at this fruit. She sees that it's good. 
It's desirable and it's going to provide knowledge and wisdom. She sees, she looks, she takes. Now that stands out in contrast to Genesis 1 and 2, which we've talked about before. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read this poem where God describes creation and he created a part of the world and then he said it was good. He created, he saw, and it was good. And then he creates the next part. And he saw, and it was good. And then you continue to read through Genesis 1 and 2, and he creates, and he saw, and it was good. And he creates, and he saw, and it was good. There's this repetition. And then there's this contrast that if you read these three chapters in one sitting, you'll see. Because for the first time, Eve sees, and she declares what is good. There's a change in who is trusted to be the visionary. Up to this point, Eve is trusted. Adam has trusted God's vision for the good life for humanity. But now there's this shift. Now she sees, she no longer trusts what he saw and declared as good. She declares something on her own is good. So she reaches out and she grabs a hold of it. At this point, Adam and Eve trusted their vision in place of God's vision. They exchanged God's vision for their vision because they'd been deceived that they knew better. And so often, all too often, we make that same exchange. <clears throat> Whether it's something that culture informs us, another influence, a parent, a teacher, something just within our spirit, and we think we know better, so we reach out and grab. We have a vision for life. Just like an organization or a company has a vision statement, something they want to see and achieve. Some families do that. All of us individually have some sense of a vision statement. We might not write it out or vocalize it or articulate it, but there's something we're pursuing. And in this moment, this exchange happens. Adam and Eve neglected the reality that, that God is a good creator, not just the creator, but he's a brilliant creator, and he's the good designer. Then we get to verses one through five. It's the foundation. Here's the why from everything else, how it all happened. Now, the serpent was the most cunning. In other places, that, that same word in the Hebrew means wise, the most wise of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made, except he uses that skill, this knowledge, this wisdom for evil. And he said to the woman, did God really say, notice this is the first step in the sequence. He gets us, he got Adam and Eve to question what God said, to question God's character. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now notice this, God said something very similar, but that's not what he said. Then the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the, uh, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now Satan loses all subtlety in verse four and he says, no, you will not die. In fact, God knows, so now he's calling God a liar. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. He's saying, no, God's holding back. God isn't good. God doesn't actually have your best interest in mind. God wants to be God. You could be God, but God doesn't want you to be. All you have to do is reach out and grab this. And then what does the next verse say? Then, and only then, verse six. Then, and only then, the woman saw. 
Now she's made the exchange and she's the visionary because God's no longer trustworthy. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. This exchange has been made. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Now stupid, irritating, and painful decisions are made. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And I think this might be the saddest sentence in all of the scriptures. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. They now cut off communication from the only one that actually cares and can do something about it. Verses 9 and 10, so the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And now he changes, Adam that is how he hears from God and what he says to God. And he starts to treat him and relate to the Father as if he's someone he actually has never been and never will be. Where are you? And Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. This is powerful and this is really important because Satan is still using the same exact scheme today And if we buy into his lies, and they're good lies, they're powerful lies, they're effective lies, he knows what he's doing, then our prayer is is going to get destroyed right from the start. Our communion, our conversation, how we speak and how we listen to the Father is, is going to go nowhere. It's going to be a waste of time. Because while we might say, our Father, while we might say, oh God, or dear God, or even Jesus, Who we have in mind is nothing like who God actually is. And if we're praying to a God who's nothing like who God really is, it's going to have a devastating impact. If you are looking at your your Bible or your phone, turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read uh, the Lord's Prayer now, beginning in verse 9. And here's where this reversal happens. Here's where Jesus uh, does the beautiful reversal of restoring God's image and our communication with him in a really powerful and certainly necessary way. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. It's often called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, As we view it and uh, as you start your groups this week, our our practice groups, uh, the practice this week will be uh, to pray through the Lord's Prayer in your own words. It's important to remember the Lord's Prayer is a template of sorts. It's a guide. It's not more powerful to say it exactly as Jesus said it because this has been translated through centuries and millenniums and cultures and languages. That's not the power in this over and over again uh, repetition. The power is in who we're praying to. So we'll look at this guide together. Jesus, after actually saying how not to pray, which we don't have time to get into this morning, we're just going to focus on how how to to pray now. He says this in verse 9. Therefore, you should pray like this. First line, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. We, we've, there's a really good chance everybody or close to everyone in this room has, has heard of this prayer, right? Our Father in heaven, uh, your name be honored as holy, our Father. We're familiar with that. We take it for granted, though. Jesus was crucified for saying this. He was crucified with stakes in his wrists and ankles bleeding out and a crown of thorns on his head 
because of how he related to and spoke to God as his father, but he didn't stop there. He then invited us and actually commanded and instructed us to pray to God, Yahweh God, the only God, the one true God, as our father. One of the keys we have to remember as we begin to practice prayer, as Jesus instructs us to, is remembering who we're praying to. The very first thing Jesus does as he begins this beautiful reversal is for us, he reminds us to remember who God is, our Father. Don't take that for granted. That's significant. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Holy is a word that I think sometimes we don't understand. It means set apart, special, unique. It it means in this context that there's only one good father. There's only one God of gods and king of kings, and his name is Yahweh God. And Jesus is saying, call him father in heaven. He's our father. You can be adopted into his family, and his name is set apart. There's only one way and one truth and one life, and it is this God. And the name is also important. In our culture, less so. In our culture, I have a credit card, and wherever I go, I can just swipe it and buy mostly whatever I want, as long as it's not over whatever my credit card limit is. In their culture, they had something similar. It wasn't quite as easy, though. They had a ring, a family ring, and then a name, and it worked very similarly. You could buy something on credit if you had a good family name, and the ring, that would symbolize it. you go, I want this, and they'd give it to you because your family name represented this history, like a credit score. Yep, they're good for it. They'll pay back. Here's what we can expect from that name and that person and that history. That's what this is describing. Your name, only the name of Yahweh God, only the name of Jesus has this track record, which is never losing, which is always loving and always forgiving and giving the best gifts and the most creative and brilliant of always helping, of being merciful and gracious, just, of providing, of listening, He's the only one that has this name and this record and this story that can actually be counted on. We say this often. We trust Jesus because he's trustworthy always, no matter the moment. He's the only one for whom we can say the moment that he is not trustworthy is a moment that does not exist. We start our prayer by remembering who he is. Our Father, your Father in heaven. Your name alone is set apart and holy and good, and we come to you now as our Father. Here's where prayer goes wrong. From this point, there's this fork in the road, because if we get that wrong, everything's going to go wrong. And it, it typically, go, typically will go wrong uh, in, in kind of one of three. There's probably a few more, but I'm going to focus on one of three ways. We don't remember who God is, and so we speak to him as Adam and Eve did, as if he's somebody that he actually is not. The first option that we go to is we speak to God as if he's just a genie. And a lot of us have probably done this or continue to. And in this instance, what happens is we trust our sight. We see and we declare what is good, like Eve did in the garden. And then we give God a role. We don't exclude him. We're really generous to this God. We go, hey, God, I've got great vision and good ideas. I know what's good. I know what I want. And I'm going to give you the role of providing it. So we have all kinds of requests. God, I want this house. God, will you help me? And we kind of, we're pretty good with our words. We don't just come out and say it like, God, you're a genie. Give me X. We go, God, show me your will. If it's your will for me to have this job, will you please provide it? 
And then we, we look to the next thing that we see and want and desire and go, God, I, I want my family's life to look like this. I want my kids to have these things. Will you provide it? And there's a variety of other requests and desires that we have because we see what is good. We see what matters most. We trust our vision. And then we let God play a role as a, a genie of sorts. The, the next option that some of us turn to, and some of you will relate to this, is we view God as an angry father, as a really hard man. He's capable. We know that, actually a little too capable, but he's not approachable. And so we approach this God who we view kind of like an angry father with a little bit of fear or a lot of fear. When we come to him, we come to him as if we have to present something, some type of offering and sacrifice. And maybe for you, it, it comes out like this. Hey, God, I know I did all these things and I'm so sorry, but I'm going to change now. This month, I'm going to do these things instead. We come with this list and this burden that we think we need to overcome. I love our God, though. Throughout the scriptures, he says this. He doesn't say only, hey, those don't mean anything. You can't buy my love. You can't earn it. He actually says this. I detest your sacrifices and your ceremonies and you going on and on and on. I want nothing to do it. I hate when you provide me these religious moments. All I want is you and the true you and all of you. And I know all the bad and I know all the good and none of it matters. I just want you because I'm a good father. And no matter what's happened, no matter what will happen, here I am. He's not the angry father. The, the third category that maybe your communication with God falls into is the absent or the preoccupied father. You trust, you know, you believe that he's there, even that he cares at least a little bit but either he's just too busy because he has all of the other people and things and issues to care about that, you know, hey, I don't really have his time. He doesn't care that much. He's too busy. Or he's just disinterested. It's a God that only shows up on the weekends or periodically. So you go, he doesn't actually care about me that much. So you don't come to him that often because he's probably not going to listen and it'll be a waste of time. The reality, too, and, and many of you know this, is that there's a really good chance you communicate and relate to God the Father like you communicate and relate to your earthly father. Maybe your father's not in your life. That's probably greatly impacting how you communicate to God the Father. Maybe he was absent or just showed up periodically. That probably influences how you speak and listen to God the Father. Maybe he's a really good dad and you're blessed, and that probably is going to influence it. Maybe he was angry, and that's hard. That's hard to internalize, but if we don't process the role that our father has played in our lives, it's probably going to really significantly and then unknowingly influence how you pray, speak to, and listen to God. Take like 30 seconds right now as we begin this practice. Think about your earthly father, whatever that situation is, and maybe that's painful, Maybe it's good. And what words, what feelings come to mind as you think about that father? Take, take a moment.
Now, as we kind of embark on this practice of prayer, as you find yourself praying along with us throughout the next six weeks, think about those emotions and those words. If those are leading the way that you're talking to the Father, that's a good sign that, that Satan's been working. Now, the, the bad news is that he's been working and he's good at it. The good news is that Jesus has conquered Satan and sin and death, and he's working in the midst of this beautiful reversal, and he will bring that full circle. He is way more powerful than the lies and deceit of Satan. That does not mean, though, that Satan's lies and deceit aren't powerful. Jesus is way more powerful than the lies and the deceit of Satan, but that doesn't mean that the lies and deceit of Satan are not powerful. We continue, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. The the next line, verse 10, says this, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A kingdom is the domain, the area, the location, the boundary that a king rules over. Your kingdom and your will means your way of life, Jesus, in all of life, on earth as it is in heaven. I love to pray this uh, and just change the location. There's no better prayer I can pray for myself than, Father, your kingdom come and your will be done in my heart. And then as I pray for my family, there's no better prayer that I can pray for them than, Father, your kingdom come and your will be done in our kitchen and in my son's bedroom and in my daughter's bedrooms and in our living room and in our driveway as guests show up in this physical space Make it your domain. May your kingdom come. May it look like you and feel like you. May your way of life be the authority. There's no better prayer I can pray for my neighbors than to look at my neighborhood and go, Father, your kingdom, your way of life, your goodness, your grace, your justice, may it be known. May it come and your will be done in this neighborhood. As I think about our church family, Father, and the everyday stuff of the lives of the people in this room, May your kingdom come and your will be done. Otherwise, we're exchanging visions. Going, you know what, God? I'm going to come to you as a genie because I have a great vision. And you can help my vision become a reality. Instead of trusting that he's the only good visionary. He knows what's best for families. He knows what's best for human relationships and cultivation and art and business. Human sexuality, desires every component of life. There's a designer, and there's other ideas. And culture and Satan will tell all kinds of lies and deceit and distortion, but unless we come and go, Father, what's your design? Then we make painful, itchy, stupid choices. And we do it often. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The next set of three uh, phrases in the next three verses, they sound like they're requests. But really, when we look at the heart of what Jesus is doing here, they're a whole lot more like reminders than they are requests. Listen here. Give us today our daily bread. This is a reminder that the Father is our capable provider. Not only does he love you more than you love yourself, but he knows what you need more than you know what you need. He's capable and he's there and he's listening. Now, he's the visionary, you're not. So he might take you to places you initially don't want to go. Might be suffering, hardship, brokenness, 
loss, but he will always be with you in it. And he'll never leave you there. He will always take you through it. You will never be alone. You will never be forsaken. And he will always be victorious. That's what his name is. That's why it's honored as holy, because he always wins. Doesn't mean it's not hard and scary, but we know when we pray after our Father, your kingdom come and your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread that hands open we can trust. Not our vision, but his, that he can and will do what's best. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors is a reminder that the Father is always forgiving. In his kingdom and his household and his family, an honest child is always a forgiven child. What I mean by that is all we have to do is bring our worst and we're forgiven. This isn't a, hey, every time you slightly mess up, come to the Father, ask for forgiveness. If you do it in the right timing, you'll be forgiven. It's not like that. This is just a beautiful reminder of what he's already done, forgiven us, and what he continues to do is deliver us, which leads us to the next reminder. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Satan has done great work with this. What happens to a lot of us is we claim Jesus as our savior. We receive him in salvation. We put our hope and faith in the name of Jesus. And then we get to know him more and we become quote unquote mature followers of Jesus and Christians. And maybe you start leading a Bible study or doing this or that. And all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, you look back and you go, you know what? Jesus got me to this point, but now I need to put a little faith in my name. It's my responsibility I'm a mature Christian. I can't do those things. I can't commit to that sin or do that thing or not do this good. And so I got to take responsibility. That's our American culture too. That's just not the gospel. The gospel is that we have a role, but he's the responsible party because he willingly, not, not only just willingly, he lovingly stepped in our place to take the responsibility for our sin to free us from it to shape and form and give us this opportunity to be human the way he made us to be, the good way, to restore all things from broken to beautiful. I love this word, deliver us. So often we take responsibility back from Jesus so that we try to be the one that delivers us. This prayer goes, nope, I I couldn't then and I still can't now, I trust his name. So, Father, you deliver me. i got a whole lot more confidence in Jesus than I do myself. Then it ends with this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Sometimes we treat God like he's suffering from dementia. We, We pray to him as if he's forgotten who he is. And he hasn't. When we pray our Father, he's like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's who I am. And yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Oh, good. I forgot that that's how it's going to, that's not what happens. What is this for? One thing, to remind us about who he is. This is hope and encouragement for us. When I pray, yours is the kingdom. He will be the king of all places and all things and all people for all of time. And the power, he actually has the power to do it. This is a reminder for me because I'm quick to forget that and to try to put the crown on my head and to take control instead of trusting his vision. And the glory forever. Amen is this word that means let it be true. This will be the truth. 
That's good. Who we have as our Father to pray to is really, really good news. My wife, Chelsea, and I uh, have made it a goal, quite unsuccessfully, to uh, go on a date once a week together. Go, that, that would just be good and healthy for our marriage, for our kids. It would just be a, a good thing. But it's really hard, not because we don't like each other. We do most of the time. But because it requires, A, discipline, B, planning. Neither of us are great at that. Some money if we're going to go out to dinner, maybe. More than anything, it costs time. And at our stage of life, that seems to be the most hard commodity to come by. So it's something that requires discipline, intentionality, and has a cost. But when we show up and we actually do go on a date, it's really good and always worthwhile. Prayer is similar, but sometimes we have this false dichotomy when it comes to prayer. We go, either it's going to be good or it's going to be a discipline. And it's both. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost time, effort, energy. You're going to have to choose to do that instead of something else. Binge watch something on Netflix or sleep more or even, even good things. Work, time with someone else. Is God worth it, though? It's both discipline and beautiful. And when Chelsea and I do go on dates, sometimes it's just the best. We sit there and have a great meal and laugh and joke and remember and plan. And it's just enjoyable and delightful. And she likes me. That's a plus. And then other times we go and we sit at the same table and it's just quiet because we're exhausted and tired. But it's okay and it's worthwhile to just be there together. And then other times we go to the same table and we sit there and it's quiet because I did something stupid and she doesn't want to talk to me. (laughs) And maybe once in a while, vice versa. (laughs) You never know what it's going to be. Sometimes there's a lot of words and they're not nice and great and good and cozy. And you have a fight. But no matter what the circumstances are, showing up is always good and worthwhile and healthy. Requires discipline. Prayer is the same. And the good news with God is he's always right. We never have to question that, so you're good to go. (laughs) Prayer matters way more than we recognize because when we pray, it protects us from Satan's scheme. When we pray, we're practicing trusting him as God rather than trying to be God. And he's always trustworthy. It's good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that because of the work of your son, we can come to you freely and confidently and and cry out to our Father, that you are our provider, that you are our deliverer, that you are our forgiver, our creator, our savior, our sustainer, and that you are good. Allow us to know you more. Speak to us and help us to listen We trust you and not ourselves. Help us to do that more. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Landon. Church, I am excited for the next several weeks together in this. Um, Whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades or uh, it's been more recent for you, I think this is a a special time for us as a church. Um, You talk about a beautiful reversal what Jesus did on the cross for me and you was certainly that. 
and him coming and laying his life down, raising from the dead, taking our place. Such a tangible reminder of the goodness of God and the power of God. It's mind-blowing to me. And then God's so good at giving us these tangible reminders of how good he is. And communion is one of those tangible reminders of the goodness of God, the provision of God, in this case, through his son, for our spiritual life, our eternal destiny. He provided even for that, the forgiveness of sins. Like there is no one else, no thing else that could make provision for that except our good God and Father. And he did that. Jesus did that for me and you willingly, lovingly, by coming and laying his life down for me and you. And so we want to invite you into a time of communion. There's communion elements on either side of the stage here that I'll pray for us. And then after that, you can come up and grab these elements. We'll ask that today that you take these elements, take them back to your seat, spend a little bit of time just in stillness, considering the goodness of God as expressed through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, and what that means for you. Spend some time with on your own. Hold on to the elements because then I'll be back here in just a minute and we'll take those together. And so gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for these precious people that are here today. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you're our sympathetic high priest that we can go directly to. Thank you that you know what it's like to be us. You know what it is to struggle as a human being. But we also thank you that you're divine, that you did not sin, that you are perfect in every way, and that we can trust you in every area of our life. But right now we thank you specifically for this reminder of Jesus, his body that was broken and his blood that was shed so that ours doesn't have to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Come take these elements, bring them back to your seat. disciples and he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. Whenever you eat this, remember me. Let's take it together. Same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents the new covenant or promise in my blood. Whenever you drink it, remember me. Here's his love poured out for you. So Father, thank you that you're so good. Thank you that we can go directly to you and talk to you and you can talk to us. We take these final moments just to lift our voices to you and make what we sing our prayer to you. In Jesus' name.
Thanks so much for listening. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. And uh, if this is your first time, we're so glad that you're able to connect. If you get an opportunity, take a moment and jump over to restorationaz.org. And uh, we would love to connect with you there. You can also learn a little bit more about who we are, what we're about. And um, yeah, if, uh, if you don't call Restoration Home and you're still just doing the online thing, we just want to encourage you, find a place to get plugged in. It doesn't have to be Restoration Church, but there's something really valuable and important about being a part of the body of Christ together. And so once again, so glad you could tune in. And until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So let's press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.